Hello, this is Russell Davis with The Art of the Artist, and my guest today is in every way one of the great names of the music industry, Engelbert Humperdinck, a golden holdover from the heyday of the solo male singer. After years of hard work, his success followed on suddenly and spectacularly from the adoption of his stage name, which at the time seemed a weird and desperate promotional ploy, but it served Engelbert well for nearly half a century. Engelbert Humperdinck, welcome indeed. Thank you. Uh, prior to 1965, I think it was, that would have been a nonsensical greeting because at the time there was just one hump, not two. There was just the German composer known really for just one opera, but suddenly it was Engelbert Humperdinck you became. And strangely, the name was accepted very quickly, wasn't it? And it's, of course, done extremely well for you. <laughs> it, was very, it was very hard for people to say at the beginning. You know, they, they always got the pumpernickel and this and that, you know, all the... Um, the, the jokes about the name. Yeah, and they play around with it still. I yeah, think, don't it, they? they yeah. still do. Yes. Yeah. But it did. It did prove to be a successful formula. Was there ever a moment when you said, "Okay, people know now exactly who I am. I'm famous. The joke's over. Can I have a you know another name now, please?" <laughs> no, no. I don't think you can start changing around. You know, I think it's a, you have to stay with one. If it's a success, a success you have to stay with it. And yeah. It was good. It was a good name. It was a good choice. Really yeah. fills a marquee, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is it true that when you first gave an autograph as Engelbert, you weren't quite sure how to pronounce, how to um, how to spell it? Because oh, God, it's it difficult. Was... But I, I, you know, I practiced and I practiced and I practiced to make it look like something and different, and uh, it, it, it it was worthwhile. Yeah. Now, very far from German opera or anything like it, you spent the first ten years of your life in in Madras. Now, uh, Chennai. Yeah, uh, and you've been back there once, to my knowledge, because you went back there as a kind of pilgrimage after your father died. Yes, I did. I did that to um, to settle some of his properties that he'd left behind, and uh, also to to give one of his houses to the the, the Catholic nuns, and um, also afterwards when I went back about when the tsunami came, I went and did some charity shows there for for the people, and it worked great. Yeah. He was uh, an engineer, your father, and a, yes, and a successful one. Yeah. And although some people brought up in India are now keen to play down, you know, the, the comforts of the life they lived there, you, for you there's no disguising that you led a privileged life. You had a big house. Yes, a very big house. Yeah, <laughs> servants, but a big family too. Yes, ten children all together. And uh, everybody used to ask, my father was Russian, but he was just taking his time. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where did you come in the ten? I'm ninth born. Right. I'm, I'm one of the babies of the family, yeah. So the system was well established by the time you came oh, yeah. along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. During the last series of these programmes, I, I proposed that there should be a meeting of famous writers and, and, and performers brought up in India with the idea that you could uh, compare notes about your early experiences. Little did I know then that you'd been recording with Cliff Richard, who was, of course, a child of the Raj himself. He was uh, born in Lucknow. Yeah. Yeah. Were you too busy, or when you met, did you actually talk about those days? I first met Cliff when he was a, a, you know, a massive star as a, you know, in the early in the fifties, actually. Yeah. And uh, I was an opening act for him, really, and some of the shows, the rock and roll shows. Uh, and I've always had great admiration for him. Yet I thought he was amazing talent, and uh, uh, a little did I, little did I know later on that I'd be doing a duet with him. Yeah, you know? yeah, 
Yes. Well, uh, the record that you made, Engelbert Calling, with all these duettists, we'll talk about one or two of them in a minute, but it caught on very well, the cliff track in particular here at Radio 2. And it, it's an example, isn't it, this record, of, of the way your career has often refreshed itself in unexpected ways over the years. Yeah. You know, one day we're asking ourselves, where's Engelbert, assuming that you'd be in Vegas or somewhere, and suddenly here you are back again. Yeah, well, you know, it, it all came about very uh, uh, suddenly, I think, because we were discussing the, the kind of, you know, what can we do to make my career, my recording career fresh, and, and, uh, and we were listening to the Elton John um, uh, live show, and on that show he says, you know, when I was a struggling young writer in, in London with the, my partner, Bernie Taupin, and uh, we were writing songs and we were waiting for like an Engelbert Humperdinck to come along and call, call us and, and find, uh, one, take one of our songs from us. And finally I made the call and, and he answered and very, very, in a very wonderful way and he said we'd love to do it. And that's how the title of the album came about called Engelbert Calling. Yeah, and you called what about twenty twenty oh, yes, odd people? Oh yeah, yeah. Personally, personally took that yeah. that on, and they all reciprocated in a way. Yeah, well, they range from Willie Nelson to uh, Johnny Mathis to Neil Sedaka to Charles Aznavour. I mean, this is a weird, really wide range of uh, people. Uh, it, we try to make it a global career, a, a global album, you know, so it can be released anywhere in the world. And and there are people of 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 great caliber that can uh, from that those countries that will be an asset to me when I, when they played in their countries, you know, to help the record sell because they're, you know, Asnavour is a big European uh, star, a world star, but he's Europe, he's more of Europe. It helps a lot, I would guess, that to have been an instrumental player at a certain time, which you were, because mm -hmm. your dad bought you a quite a decent saxophone <laughs> eventually, yeah. uh, and off you went. Did you have any saxophone idols in mind in those days? Well, I, I suppose being my name, as my name was Dorsey, you yeah. know, I wanted to be like a Jimmy Dorsey, you know, and um, I studied the sax from the age of 11 to 17, and uh, I was I was okay. I was not a bad player, but... I think my true uh, instrument was in my throat, and, and it happened to show itself when I was 17. Yeah. So how long did you carry the sax with you in, into your career? Not, not into not, the Engelbert days? No, no, not no, into the no. No, no. I put that down and made the voice come out, put my whole life into it. But I did have a great deal of musical experience. Yes. It must have been an encouragement that there were famous Dorseys, you know, across yeah. the world, leading bands. And Tommy Dorsey, of course, employed Frank Sinatra, and uh, yeah, uh, who's you know your paths crossed inevitably in Vegas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Vegas is a, a little bit ahead of us in the story. First, you had to come to England. There's always a point in these Anglo-Indian stories where the young child has to leave the subcontinent and, and find out painfully what life is like over here. Was it a big shock for you? Well, you know, my father was in the British Army, and uh, you know, he he gave us a good life uh, over there while while he was stationed there. You know, yeah. and unfortunately, um, uh, I was I, I was born there, and it was it was no big deal. You know, it was nice being born in the sun. Yeah. Uh, and um, my my father was Irish, my mother was half, half German, so I've got quite a lot of mixed brother in me. See? Yeah, and um, it was fine coming back here. Fine. Yeah. I, I loved it. 
I loved it coming in the cold. <laughs> <laughs> you went to work very young in an engineering factory, yes, which I must did. have pleased your yeah. father because that was sort of, sort of going into the family line. But also very young, you started singing in clubs. You were sort of in the, at the bottom end of the teenage years, weren't you? Really? Yeah, I was at 17. I, 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 started, I started my career. I, I used to go and um, um, have find out what key I sang in and buy just the sheet music so I can play in the, the working men's clubs, you know. So I, I did yeah. it for about about a year before I went in the service. And I was in the service when I was 18 until I was 20. Yeah. I came out and went back into the clubs and tried to to keep going. And, and uh, I serviced myself in that respect, got a good apprenticeship there. So and then I started going, doing, doing my uh, auditions in London, you know, and... Uh, um, I mean, many a time I was turned down, but it was okay. I kept knocking on doors, and finally they opened. Yeah, but your first singing experiences then must have been in Leicester, a city that you've remained yeah, very, yeah. very devoted to, and they to you. Yes, yes. Yes. And at that age, of course, you imitate or you emulate uh, musical idols, and I think one of yours was Frankie Lane, a big-chested ballad singer, yeah. if, ever, if ever there was one. And a song of his uh, was, was the cause of you getting a standing ovation for the first time as I understand it. You borrowed A Woman, woman in Love. Your eyes are the eyes of a woman. Woman in Love. Yes. Yeah. The Frank Lesser's song. And uh, and the audience really loved that. Yeah, and that's, that's what I passed a, a contest with, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I got a free holiday in the Isle of Man for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that in those days, wasn't there? Yeah. It doesn't happen anymore. Song, no. song contests Don't locally. Yeah. I know, but... I used to do a lot of auditions, and and the, the, one of my favorite p people at that time was Pat Boone, so I'd sing one of Pat Boone's songs, you know. But I think I should have just let Pat Boone sing it. Every time I sang his song, I failed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just told him, actually, I was with him a couple of weeks ago, and I, I told Pat the story. And I said, Pat, there's only one person that should sing Love Letters in the Sand, and I said, that's you. Because every time I sang it, I, I failed. <laughs> mm. Yeah, he did have that sort of echo chamber behind him. He had he, a little bit of help, I think. But is he still? He's still performing, Pat. Is he? Oh yes, he's still yeah. not not as much as you know as, as I do. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, he does, I think, occasional um, concerts. Yeah, your recording career as Jerry Dorsey didn't take off, but the discs, I imagine, are collector's items now. I think they might be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it the fault of the discs? Were they, were they not good no, no, or no, was it no. bad luck? In... No, I think, I, I think if, if, uh, if it's not a hit, it, it wasn't correct, you know, it, although we, we thought it might have been at the time, but I don't think that they were commercial enough in my, when I look back on it right now. I had some wonderful people who were behind me, like Norman Newell, if you remember the name. I do. And he was a wonderful songwriter and everything. And and, and uh, no, I once went to Norman. I said, Norman, can I have some uh, uh, my royalties, you know? He said, what royalties? <laughs> <laughs> I said, but Norman, I have to pay my rent. I haven't got any money. So he said, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a personal check and uh, you pay your rent. When you, when you do get royalties, you can pay me back. Well, this went on and on and on, and of course, I, I never, never had had any money and never had any success, and uh, he kept giving me these checks, you know. And I, but when I did find release, we came along, and when it came along, and I started to get some money, and I, I met up, met up with Norman. I said, Norman, you've been a very good friend to me. I said, I owe you a lot of money. I'd like to pay for it, pay or pay pay you back right now. He said, Engelbert. 
He said, you've recorded so many wonderful songs of mine. I've made my money back ten times over. He said he wouldn't accept a check from me. Mm. What, a, what, a, what a gentleman. Yes, mm. yes. You don't come across that an awful lot in the no, business. No. Yeah, no. Now, it was Gordon Mills, wasn't it, your manager, who invented the change of name. Yeah. What, looking back, was the balance of your experiences with Gordon Mills? Because I think later you felt his heart had been more in the management of his other big client, Tom Jones. Yes, it was. You know, Gordon and I sort of uh, were the best of friends. We really were. We shared a a flat together in in Cleveland Square, and I was his best man, he was my best man, and we were close as can be, you know, but... I think he had an affinity for the other side more than he did for me. Although he did make my name. He did make my name. He did make me, which I was truly grateful for. And, uh, but I, I felt, it, it, you know, it was, it was a, a team of horses. One had reins and one didn't. Yeah, I see. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And um, I, I just didn't feel like that, I'd, being choked on. Yes. I, uh, I, I remember in, instances later on when you said, you know, I got this advice from Gordon and maybe I shouldn't have taken it. Um, he, was, he was a brilliant... I'll be honest with you, he was a brilliant man. He, he, he was managed to make uh, the careers of Gilbert O'Sullivan, myself, and, and Jones very, very powerful all over the world, you know, and, and uh, created mass business for us. And... Um, Hence, you know, I can I can play anywhere in the world today, I, and I do, and I do. It's very serious. Just a few weeks ago, I, I was over in in Manila and Davao and Singapore and Russia. So you know, and my all my music is very popular in all these countries, including Australia, New Zealand, and the B side. Oh, this is a nice story. The B side to release me was a song called Ten Guitars, and that's like the um, national anthem in New Zealand. Everybody knows it from the child, from little children to everyone. To this day, to this day is the national anthem, and that's 47 years old. Isn't it strange how yeah. that happens? And it was the B-side there, too. Nobody was giving it extra promotion. It was still the B-side. It is the B-side. Yeah. wow. Well, because we seldom looked in those days, at least my and my friends didn't, at the writing credits on a song, we all thought that Release Me was... Newly written, but but it was actually an old country number and not written to catch any new waves in the market at all. No, it was Ray Price. Ray Price had the big hit on it. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, Ray Price and all his concerts that he ever did, he always said, you know, I'm going to sing a song now that used to belong to me until Engelbert Humperdinck came along. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course, he only just passed uh, just last year, bless him. Yeah. And... Um, but he always had a good word to say about me, you know, which was nice. Well, that is nice, yes, yes. And you did have one big stroke of luck for a change uh, with the Sunday Night at the London Palladium because Dick, Dickie yeah. Valentine should yeah, have been doing that. He got sick and uh, and uh, they they put me on the show, fortunately, because my song, uh, Release Me, was on the jukebox jury and it was voted a miss, uh-huh. you see. Uh, and um, the only person that voted it a hit was Lulu. Ah. And, of course, Lulu's on my album, did you yeah, see? Yeah. yeah, she was in here a, yeah. bit, a little while ago, too. And, and uh, she she made good comment on it and, uh, and said, I think it's a hit, she thinks it, but three other people voted it a miss. So three months it sat, 
doing nothing until the London Palladium came along. And then the very next day, I mean, the orders for this particular uh, song was like 80,000. And then the next day was 85,000. And I I used to call every day and say, how many today? Oh, it's 92,000. Oh, it's 98,000. Oh, it's 97,000. And the most it ever sold in one day was 127,000. So it was an amazing number. And, of course, that's the song that kept the Beatles off number one with Penny Lane. Indeed, yeah. And and for this little lad from Leicester to come and do that was quite an amazing feat. Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly you were in America. Um, Gordon Mills was keen on that, wasn't he, the the move to America. He wanted the whole base to be shifted to America in the end, really, your base of operation. Well, you know, what happened in the early days is the the fact that the, the... the tax was very high in, in this country, and uh, it was just. I mean, just, we suffered a long time. Yes, <laughs> you know, staggering uh, without high money. For some in, people, wasn't it? Yeah, it went up to ninety-eight percent or something. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Mm. Uh, so therefore, you know, I think Gordon Mills said, "You, we have to go somewhere where it's going to be." Uh, uh, much easier so uh, we went over to the states to make an uh, make it over there yeah and I, I did the Ed Sullivan show same as the, the show that really kicked the Beatles off the ground and you know got them off the ground and and many other acts like Elvis Presley you know yes and I went on and and my my song went to number one over there too. Well, these shop window shows. I mean, our example was Sunday Night London Lady. Sunday did it for here, and over there it was the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah. they don't exist anymore. These things. No, that, they don't. That no, they bring don't. you instant recognition all over yeah. a country. And and the respect that people had for the people that put these shows on. You know, they like everybody loved Ed Sullivan. You know, it was amazing. And and of course the the Palladium. It was presented in such a wonderful way that. Uh, uh, it it had to make you a success. If it didn't, there's something wrong. Yes. Strange, because he was, he was a sort of unglitzy-looking guy, wasn't he? I mean, he looked like a running the back office rather than fronting the programme. But uh, <laughs> he wasn't wasn't a showbiz type, really. But uh, yeah. once he got on camera, he was yeah. quite mm-hmm. mesmeric, I suppose. But, and the nice part about, you know, when I did the Palladium, uh, right after the show, I, yeah. I, I got a call from, from Dickie Valentine who told me how thank you for helping, you know, filling in his spot. And I thanked him most sincerely. And uh, and then Frankie Vaughan, the, the classic man, called me and he said, what a great job you did. And I thought that was amazing. It's not a bad business sometimes, isn't yeah. it? But you never know. Yeah. You started in Vegas, of course, as well. I was going to ask you what Vegas was like then, but it's a useless question because Vegas changes almost from year to year, doesn't yeah. it? In the, in the early years, it was, it was amazing. You know, it, when it... There was just about six hotels when I went there. Yeah, and uh, and then when they put my name on the marquee, um, my stomach turned uh, uh, in all <laughs> kinds of directions. I saw my name go up on the marquee, and that was it. I it just I I froze yeah. at one o'clock in the morning, and I was looking out the window. But uh, I I played Vegas, and it gave me it's a capital entertainment city of the world, as you know, yeah. and all the major stars in the world have played there, and I was happy to be doing it. And I had I played in that particular hotel for nine years with without an empty seat. Yeah, wow. a month a month uh, a year. Yes, but it's a place you need friends, isn't it? Which I guess is why the stars in Vegas tend to cluster around and they support each other's shows and yeah. they make it a kind of team game instead of just individuals. Yeah, yeah. Anywhere else they might be at each other's throats, but in Vegas they seem to huddle together for warmth. So you'd meet everybody who was on the other hotels. In the early days, a lot of camaraderie. Who was kindest to you? Dean Martin gets a lot of 
recommendations Dean in your was, book. Dean was the best. He was just the best. I mean, I dined with Dean many a night in in L.A., you know, and uh, he, was, he was such a wonderful man to be with. You know, every night he would argue with the maitre d' of what he's going to eat for about an hour, and he finished up with sausage and potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Because he always seems so laid back, you couldn't believe he was interested in anybody else. Yeah, but actually, he, he did. He did help. And you know, he never rehearsed. He just came in off the golf course, and he'd have his cue cards, and he'd come in and say, "Okay, what's, what's, what, what, am I, what key am I singing this in? Or oh, what am I? Where's my cards?" And he'd just read it, and he was just a natural, you yeah. know. And everything he ever did was very natural. Yes. Elvis, meanwhile, well, the important thing to know about Elvis is that he grew his sideburns quite a long time after you grew yours. Yes, he did. He yeah. caught it from you. I had a lovely story. Just uh, I was doing an interview with a gentleman who does biographies, and uh, he did Steve McQueen's, and he did Elvis, yeah. and he he's, uh, he did a lot of research, research on on uh, on Elvis, and Elvis's bodyguard, Sonny West, I believe it was, who he asked him questions, and he said um, he said uh, uh, that Elvis always had a great affinity with Engelbert Humperdinck. He thought I was the brother he lost at birth. Uh, it's a it, lovely thing to say. Yes, because he was an only twin, as it were, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes, that's right, his mm. twin twin died. Ah, that, but yes, that's, that's a very sweet thing to say. You, of course, with that success in places like Vegas, you start garnering huge numbers of fans, and among them there are always some wild eccentrics and some... Complete mad yeah. ones, and wasn't it true that at some point you had to have, have a bulletproof vest because you were getting threats from these people's husbands yeah. or wives or something? Yeah, I was I was driving in, in a limousine, and um, I was in the back seat, and a bullet went through the window, and and I uh, the car stopped, and I told the, told the driver that his name is Frank. I said, Frank, put your foot down, go, 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 and he shot off, you know, and uh, we didn't know who it was. And we reported to the police, and everyone came, and I had many interviews by police people, and and they suggested that I, I wear a bulletproof vest. Oh. I did it for three years. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. And these were just the amateurs, I mean, let alone the professionals, because you couldn't be in, in Vegas without meeting people who turned out to be important mob guys, yeah. gangsters. Was it Joe Gallo? Oh, no, Joe Gallo wanted to meet you, but... Before he got the chance to, they rubbed him out in New York. No, no he came. They came upstairs one time and banged on the door and tried to get up uh, to my suite, you know. And uh, I should have, I should have let them in because, you know. <laughs> I think you probably should. Yeah, but, crazy uh, Joe Gallo, he was yeah. called. And uh, when he was shot in New York, they never got anybody for it either. Which no, is, the two bodyguards had left when they came upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> It's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. In contrast to the dodgy clientele on occasions, you had some wonderful musicians with you uh, in those times. Laurie Holloway, for example, is one I Laurie's know well, and what a wonderful player he is. Excellent, excellent. And he's a dear friend of mine to this day, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, he did some wonderful arrangements on my, my albums as well. You know, Laurie was responsible for that. He traveled with me for five years before he settled down to do stuff on television here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a great guy. Yes, delightful man. Yeah. One gig I wish I'd seen you do. Uh, I suppose it was one gig, or maybe it was a week or something, but with when Hendrix was agreed to back you. Yeah. How, well, did, how did that happen? Well, they were, you know, the, his his people were looking to uh, bring him into Europe for and uh, get him well-known in Europe, so they had to put him on a bill with people that were known. 
So they came here, and they was on the bill with Walker Brothers, Cat Stevens at the time, and, and myself, you know. And uh, um, I sort of closed the, for the, the, some of the shows, and he would be opening, uh, close the first half, you know, Jimi Hendrix. And one day, my guitarist didn't show up, so he said, don't worry, man, I'll play for you. And that was it. It was like three guitars behind me, you know, when he was playing. Yeah. But I said, Jimmy, you can't be exposed to the audience. He said, no, I'll play behind the curtain. So he played behind the curtain. Yeah. But did he play his, his normal style or a tone? His normal, tone? It, did he? Yeah, and it was just amazing. I only wished we'd recorded it. Yeah, what so a do piece, I. Yeah. What a piece of tape that would have been. It would, mm. yeah. But that was okay. You could manage that because that's quite a demanding guitar style. It could get oh, yeah. whatever, saying yeah. it, yeah. But in all of this, I gather that you wouldn't actively be choosing the songs that you would perform in those days. Well, uh, I, actually, I, I didn't because, you know, you, I, I was a nobody who had no power to do anything, so I, I was just looking for success. And so Gordon Mills and the record companies would yeah. would uh, be choosing the songs, and they'd present it to me, and, and, and then I'd say, yes, I like it or I didn't like it, you know? Yeah. So your performance... I suppose, in a way, wasn't a truly an expression of you, at least not fully. You were just seducing an audience with material supplied. Supplied, yes. And I, I just did the best I can with the, the tools I had, you know. And, yeah. uh, um, and I, I, I think some of the songs were, were terrific. I mean, the, the great songs that were provided me with, with uh, Les Reed and Barry Mason, you know, they were just a dynamite team together and they presented me with great songs like yeah. The Last Waltz and they basically let the bell size. Yes. And um, uh, those, are, those, those are the people that presented me with great, great songs. Yeah. I remember Le Bicyclette de Belsize coming out and thinking, gosh, this is a bit demanding on yeah. the audience. Yeah. This, is, this is French and North London at the same time. What are we dealing with here? And, I, I, you know, it's, there were sometimes, you know, like uh, Gordon said, I want you to go and see Bert Camford, who lives in Spain, and he has some songs. Let him play them to you and see if you like them. So I went, and he played me um, uh, three songs, Wonderland by Night, Spanish Eyes, uh -huh. and Strangers in the Night. I came back to London, I recorded them all. I thought Strangers in the Night is going to be the hit. And then as soon as I finished recording it, Gordon said to me, you can't have Strangers in the Night. Frank Sinatra wants it. Mm. Well, mm. Frank must have paid a tidy little price for that. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. once you've had a burst of really big hits, such as you had, one after the other, uh, you know, after Release Me came The Last Waltz yeah. and all the rest of it, you've got the basis of an act for all time, really. Yeah. And you can carry, if you... If you must, you can, can carry on doing that forever. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it becomes more nostalgic over time, but it yes. is, But it's always there as a rock. But you see, today, today the audiences really ask for the, the nostalgia. They ask for it. They they wait for it because these are the songs that really made you at the beginning. So they, this is what they want. I mean, if you went to you, you see Paul McCartney, you know he'll. <laughs> you come out and do all the classics, you know, and the, and the audience goes absolutely berserk. Yeah, true. You've been quite a practical joker in your time because it was all boys behaving badly in hotels and all that. Yeah. So what was your favourite among the ones you perpetrated? Because it's quite a list of, of, of things, practical jokes that you uh, played on your guys. Well, I... I I can't think of any right <laughs> But uh, I tell you what, uh, I was staying in a hotel in, in New York and um, it was my birthday and they brought this big cake. And uh, I, so I started cutting a big slice to get, and there was a mirror on the wall. I was very sort of acting up a little bit in those days. So I got this piece of cake and I threw it against the mirror 
you see. And just then, the owner of the hotel walked in. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, my God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Jimmy, I'm so sorry. He said, sorry about what? Is that your cake? I said, yes, that's my cake. He says, can I have a piece of that? So he got a piece of it, and he took it and threw it against the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been, we've been friends ever since, and it's over 40 years ago. Well, yeah. Is that Mr. Cosentino? That Cosentino, name comes, that's it. comes back to me. Yeah. My gosh, you do know your business. Well, I don't. That name, I don't know. It's. I think it was, I don't know. It stuck in my mind. But uh, given all that, it shouldn't surprise us that there are jokes among your recorded output too. This is one you're going to have to explain to me. But It's a smooth ballad called Lesbian Seagull. Now, yeah. how on earth did that happen? Well, I was playing at the Greek Theatre in Los Angeles, and uh, the producers of the of the show came to see my show, and they found I had a sense of humor, and uh, they said, "We have a song for our new album, Beavis and Butthead Do America. Would you listen to it and see if you'd like to record it?" I said, "Send it to me. I'd be happy to." They sent it to me, and that's a beautiful ballad, you know, really a nice ballad, and of course it talks about a lesbian seagull, but that's fine, you know. Uh, so I did the song, and it became a platinum, platinum song, you know. And, uh, and I thank him for coming to see me. A song written by Tom Wilson Weinberg in response, apparently, to a report that there'd been a government-funded study made of monogamous lesbian behaviour in seagulls. How do these things happen? I don't know. <laughs> and I believe that song underwent a kind of revival recently. Well, it's done it more than once on British radio stations. And that was after your appearance on the Eurovision Song Contest, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they discovered that. Now, that's a tricky subject for all of us. Yes, it is. The Song Contest. <laughs> I mean, I had some hopes that you were going to reverse the tide of history and uh, bring us some points. But uh, it, it seems that no matter what we sing or what singer takes the job on, yes, it, Europe is going to spurn us. Yeah, what are your feelings about it now it's in the past? It's very political, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, there were people, on, uh, there were grannies there who came second and who, who didn't have a, a gold or platinum album on the wall and they came second. It's a song contest. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's and they didn't even sing the old baking bread while, while they were miming the song, you know. Yeah. And uh, it was just hysterical. But I want to tell you something. It opened the doors to a lot of my uh, places in, in Europe for me again. And uh, people remembered and then knew I was still around. Although it didn't, I wasn't high on the bell as, as far as my results were. But um, it did me good. It did me good. It was, it's an experience. And you have, to take, you have to take the rough with the smooth. And if you come somewhere last, then you come somewhere last. You know? Yeah. But uh, the people that came first, I... I <laughs> I mean, the publicity says you were the oldest singer to participate at 76. Yeah. Has age made any... Looking at you now, I can't believe it has, but made any difference to how you approach the business? No. No, no, no. no. You know, I I, um, I want to grow grow old gracefully, and uh, and, and people ask me, have you ever had a, re- a knife to your face? I said, no, I haven't. You know, I, I live in Beverly Hills, and, and it's nice going back to Beverly Hills now and again, seeing old friends with new faces, but I didn't want to be one of them. No, no, right. <laughs> and so, therefore, I, 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 I'll i grow old gracefully. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy called Howard Stern. Howard so, Stern. Oh, the radio uh, man, Howard, Howard Stern. Stern. Yeah, 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 I did, I did his show. And he says, if you had work done to your face? I said, I, absolutely not. And, you know, he sent people over to lift my hair up and see if I had scars on my neck and my head. <laughs> they really checked me out. Yeah. That's quite a rude show sometimes. Oh, God, were, were you yeah. safe? You're all right. <laughs> You're not yeah. safe. You're not safe. <laughs> Anywhere, no, probably not. No. Every artist has a period of 
downturn, though. Yours came, what, in the 80s? It wasn't inactivity. It was mainly mainly too much high living, I think, was it? You say in your book that you, you're drinking a lot of brandy and stuff. And yeah, I did, After yeah. the show and stuff. I, actually, I, I, you know, you reach a stage where um, um, you feel that nothing is, is going right for you and you've, you've got the wrong manager and, you know, and I haven't had a... I haven't had a manager since Gordon Mills uh, until uh, my son, Scott, has taken over and he, he's the only person I consider, uh, you know, to be of any, uh, of, uh, of good caliber and good and carry my career to an extent. He's partly responsible for all this as well, so I'm, I'm happy about having him. I wondered if you'd been talking to Tony Bennett about it all, because that's exactly what happened to him. His son took over yeah. his business and teamed him up with MTV and all this stuff, and he, he was fine after that. But... You see, the, the, the reason I, I think he's good is because he's young and he's, he's, uh, he knows his music, you know, and he knows business, and, and he knows how to uh, handle himself, you know, with, with uh, respect yeah. and giving people respect and not being a... Uh, uh, you know, the yeah. kind of person you, you can't deal with. I think the 80s were a messy time for many people in, yeah. in show business. So I've had, I've had a few managers that, that, that gave me that sort of thing that I, I couldn't tolerate, uh, tolerate them, so it led me to having drinks and things like that. Yeah. You know? But thank God I didn't get into the other stuff, you know, because um, the marijuana, yeah. I wouldn't put that stuff in my arm. Right, yeah. <laughs> and you also had the kind of manager who left you with... Rather less money than you were entitled to, I think. You know? Well, yes, I did. Yeah, um, uh, the money drifted away, uh, and I didn't know where it went. And um, you, therefore, you see, I think power of attorney should only be in the hands of the person who makes the money. Yeah, and not the power of attorney of any of any manager. And I, and I say that most sincerely to any upcoming artists who are, are, are intending to make a lot of money. Uh, uh, sign your own checks. Yeah. Well, in spite of that, at the end of the 80s, um, the honours were still coming your way. Here's a big, fat trivia question for listeners at home. I know you can answer it. What, what do the following names have in common? Tom Hanks, W.C. Fields, Errol Flynn, Meryl Streep, Johnny Depp, Sidney Poitier, Sonny and Cher, Reba McIntyre, Samuel L. Jackson, Walt Disney, Mary Tyler Moore, Morgan Freeman, Nicolas Cage, Paul Newman, The Beatles, Stevie Wonder and Engelbert Humperdinck. Do you remember the answer to that? You do. Please. No? It's the same, but you're all in the same block of the Hollywood Walk of Fame together. Oh, really? And that's pretty good company, isn't it? You know, there's nobody there you wouldn't want to be isn't seen with. Isn't that something? Oh, my word. That, that's you. Yeah. yeah. W.C. Fields. Mine is right outside the hotel. Yeah? Yeah. The, um, he's named after a president, what's it? Oh, uh, the Roosevelt Hotel, is it? Oh, in the Roosevelt. Roosevelt, Roosevelt yeah. Hotel, mm -hmm. yeah. Over the years, you ha you haven't given us Engelbert Humperdinck sings Cole Porter or Irving Berlin or anything, but uh, you, so the Great American Songbook, you've largely you haven't avoided it, but you've not specialised in it. That's true to say. No, not really. Uh, They've I, all been modern songs, modern-ish songs. Yeah, song. But you know, I think. Uh, I, as far as I've I've tried everything, I've, I've recorded a lot of albums, and as you know, I've had a, a lot of success with my my sales, which are uh, like 150 million albums over the world. Yes, you know? indeed. Uh, you know, I didn't collect all the money that I made with those albums. You know, it, it, of course. it went in different directions. Yes, yeah. So I'm just I'm not going to, uh, to say where it went because I don't know. <laughs> 
but you did. I make, didn't spend it. You did make one album of of standards, uh, great American standards, just to show you could do it. I guess. Yeah. And uh, what are, what are you around doing for the rest? Is everything mapped out for the rest of this year, for example? Well, yes, it is. It's it's moving well with this new duet album. You know, I think uh, uh, it has changed uh, uh, a lot of our plans in in many ways. It's it's moved my career and quite quite some uh, somewhat. And I hope it's I hope it's going to get better too because you know people say to me when are you going to retire I said I don't want to retire because I love what I do it's a very creative world that I live in it's a creative business I'm in and as long as the people out there want me I shall be there on that stage yeah well they certainly do and one advantage of making an album like this with all these duet partners is that when they make one they're going to invite you and so you've got 23 guaranteed tracks coming up <laughs> It could happen. You never know. Yeah. Well, this has been most enlightening. Thank you very much, Engelbert Humperdinck. My pleasure. Thank you. And that was Engelbert Humperdinck, holder of an honorary doctorate of music from the University of Leicester, a city that has its own walk of fame, and naturally, Engelbert was one of the first to be on it. Not that it's an endless lap of honour. He works as hard as anyone of his vintage. During one week in May, he appeared at the London Palladium and the historic Pabst Theatre in Milwaukee enviable venues for any performer. My thanks to him for stopping off here and thanks also to my producer, Sarah Cropper. This was a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio and on 88 to 91 FM.